Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. What they consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. The, the beginning of the first season is always so rough because it's like, it's like riding a bicycle, like even just researching, man. I know. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> My attention span has gotten worse. All right. I'm jazz fingered. <laughs> I'm ready. Okay. So hands. Okay. Ready? One, two, three. Hey there, and welcome to season seven of She Builds Podcast, where we share stories about women in the design and construction field, one lady at a time. This season, we are having a wild card theme. Every season, our ladies usually have something in common, whether it was their industry, i.e. academia, or that they were from international countries, what have you. But this season, we are going to tell the stories of ladies because we just thought it was cool and necessary to share. So I want to say that this wildcard season, there are no rules. But of course, we need the bumpers to keep us on track. So true to every season, all of the stories that we share are of ladies that have passed away. And somehow or some way, they have impacted or influenced the design and construction field. So... Wildcard season, season seven. Let's go. Ladies, how are we feeling? Feeling good. So excited. Woo! Yeah. Yeah. And so thankful that we're back. Thank you guys. Thank you everyone for listening and coming back. All right. So this week we are going to talk about Sylvia Harris, who was a graphic designer and design strategist who was behind some large scale programs in the U.S., who is also known to be a pioneer of social design. So for the record, for those that are new, I'm Jessica Rogers getting ready for a shrimp and grits dinner with the parentals based out of Miami, Florida. Hey there, I'm Lizzie Rar, heading to a girls night in in San Francisco. And I'm Nardiri Rivas about to have some chicken noodle soup because I'm sick from Houston, Texas. Mm. I'm sorry you're sick, but that sounds good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Now for our disclaimer. The three of us are not historians, nor are we experts on this subject. We're just sharing stories about the information we find about each of these women. 
If we get our facts a little mixed up, please forgive us. Leave us a comment and we'll all continue learning together. All right. So our story begins in 1953 in Richmond, Virginia. Sylvia Harris was born and her father was a women's sports coach. He was considered to be legendary. His name was Tricky Tom Harris, and her mother was an artist and an art teacher. (laughs) Tricky Tom? I mean, like, (laughs) sorry. First off, that name just really made me laugh. But why is he tricky? I feel like that nickname makes me skeptical and untrusting of him. Like, you know what I mean? Like, he's going to trick me. And why is he legendary? I know, right? I feel like that's not something to write home about. Tricky Tom. Tricky Tom. Mm -mm. I don't think Tricky was a bad nickname. He was actually. I hope not, but I'm just wondering what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I just thought it was like Tricky rhymes with Tom or whatever. Like, not rhymes, but like the alliteration of it. And anyway, the guy was legendary. He was an icon. Tom Tricky Harris, he was actually the basketball coach for the Virginia Union University women's basketball team. And in 2020, the team from the 1983 was inducted into the NCAA Hall of Fame, Coach Harris's team. VUU would become the first HBCU to win an NCAA women's title. So today, VUU's Thomas Harris Fitness Center is named after him. Okay. He does sound impressive, and I can understand the legendary piece now, but I'm still left hanging on the tricky bit. What's so tricky? (laughs) Notice how it's not called Tricky Fitness Center. I did notice that they left it out. Suspicious. Mm -hmm. I think they were trying to keep it profesh. I I mean, I guess. Just professional. Just saying. I will say... Uh, can I just say, though, it's just interesting to me, like what kind of information we find on the parents, because I don't know, I'd like to think that it gives some kind of insight to what our ladies, how the, our ladies were brought up and stuff. So tricky or not. In this case, Coach Harris, that's what I'm going to call him, Coach Harris, mm-hmm. was a beloved coach that would be referred to as the sixth man. So do any of you guys get that basketball reference? Not at all. Well, Aren't there like five people playing on court? So is the sixth man like an honorary player? Okay, so as the basketball fan here, um, let me let me explain. Thank you. Um, In basketball, it means that it's the most valuable player outside of the starting lineup. So this can it typically means someone on the sideline. That would be like the biggest cheerleader for the rest of the team. They are also generally considered to be just a great team player. So. Finding this out about her dad after what I had already read about Sylvia, it made total sense to me. So there we are. I mean, she's teasing us now, right? Yeah. But also, (laughs) like, you really like baseball, like you said, right? So I think that would endear him to you. Let's make sure we say basketball, basketball. though. (laughs) Yeah, I like basketball. Did I say baseball? (laughs) Correct. Yeah. Because I like baseball. I was going to say that's what Nergeny likes, but. (laughs) Yeah. I like eating at baseball games. I'll say that because <laughs> I do. I like you get me. You know what dogs. I meant. <laughs> but I see why you're defending him so much. All right. So finding information on Sylvia, it was a challenge. And well, at least the type of information that I wanted to find out was difficult. Right. Like, I don't know her birthday, y'all. Just 1953. That's all I got. And it happens. I don't know. 
Yeah, I don't know how she was as a kid or her early college days. I don't even know. She played basketball. But, you know, here's why we're talking about her dad instead. You know what? Been there, done that. Yeah. I yep. mean, we, that's like I said, we've had to do that before. <laughs> but like you said, it's good when we have a chance to cover more background because sometimes we find a lot of information and we have to gloss all over that. So it's yeah, good when true. we have a chance to talk about it. Yeah, I found a lot about Virginia basketball. But anyway. So, um, although I couldn't find out much about her childhood, I can only imagine what it would have been like for her to grow up in Virginia in the 1960s. She attended a newly desegregated high school. And okay, so I guess what I should have also mentioned at the beginning was that Sylvia was a black woman. So she would witness firsthand how social systems would impact people's lives just based off of someone's skin color. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I can't even imagine how hard that must have been. And it reminds me of some of our past ladies like Amaza Lee Meredith from episode 42 and her experience growing up in Virginia several decades before Sylvia. Yeah. A story that would come up in my research was how Sylvia's mother would scream outside her car window at the KKK members who were seen demonstrating on the street. Sylvia would also recall how she would have to dress up just to go shopping in the white owned downtown department stores. Wow, that's really terrifying about her mom and the KKK story. Oof. Yeah. Yeah, that's really scary. Yep. I mean, I'm scared to this day. Right. About, yeah. Like if yeah. I see that I on the street, I'd be so scared. I wouldn't even scream. I would hide or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we don't see people with white hoods, but there's still scary that stuff. kind of prejudice. There's still yeah. scary stuff out there. Yeah. It's so it's it's maddening to think about where, where we are 2022 in the 1960s. But anyway, that was Sylvia's childhood firsthand accounts of what the world looked like for her. And OK, so we're going to fast forward because the next bit of information I got was that Sylvia would attend Virginia Commonwealth University and she would get a BFA in communication, art and design with a focus on film and photography. So after graduating in 1975, she would move to Boston, where she would discover graphic design to be her intended career path. That's interesting. It is interesting because in Boston, Sylvia would work with architects and in the broadcast media industry. Mm. So in Boston, she would meet Chris Pullman, who was the vice president of WGBH and who would provide the visuals for some of your favorite PBS programs. He would work on the visuals like the title sequences of The Antique Roadshow and Masterpiece Theater. Lizzie, aren't you a fan of Masterpiece Theater? Yes, I love their shows. (laughs) I've mentioned them probably way too many times on this show, but they're so good. (laughs) Really? I think only once. Well, but I don't it know. It was really thorough that one time. I mean, Masterpiece <laughs> Theater is great. What can I say? Yeah. <laughs> well, what a diverse scene to be working in. Architecture, broadcasting shows how much she can do as a graphic designer. Yeah, no kidding. I kind of always forget that about graphic designers, but their mm-hmm. industry is so versatile. I mean, it, or it can apply to many different disciplines and things like that. So mm-hmm. I'm intrigued to hear more about what Sylvia does next. So Chris Pullman, right, meets Sylvia. They kind of become he kind of becomes uh, Sylvia's mentor and he would be actually the one to introduce Sylvia to the world of graphic design, which would also lead Sylvia to study graphic design at Yale University. Oh, 
this just got fancy. Ivy Leaguer over here. Yep. All right. So here, her years at Yale is where a lot of my research began. In my readings of her obituaries and personal accounts from her colleagues, it all starts here, right when she's attending Yale. They would say that she was just this tall presence that was active in class discussions about design and typography. Love learning about women who have a lot to say and have a platform they feel comfortable shining in. Yeah, and it sounds Mm -hmm. like she was really into what she was learning about, too, which is great. Oh, yeah. So after graduating with her master's in graphic design, together with a couple of classmates, Juanita Dugdale and David Gibson, they would start a firm called 212 Associates, named after the building where they attended lectures located on 212 York Street. What a fun name. That means our company would be like Slocum Associates. Mm, Not as fun. (laughs) Maybe not. It doesn't sound too bad. I don't mind it. Yeah, but none of us are Slocum. Wouldn't that get confusing? I mean, we just tell people (laughs) that's what it meant. What about College Place Associates? But then we're in college forever? No. That's the name of the street. Yeah, that's the name of the street. I know, but it like, I don't know. uh, Well, it sticks. Well, yeah. It doesn't have the same ring. I guess it kind of sounds like it came out of Monopoly or something. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I guess... We should stick to She Built Associates then. Yeah, we should yeah. pick the name we've already picked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So 212 Associates was located in New York and they would work with major corporations. Sylvia was interested in interactive media and user-centered design. At her firm, they saw, quote, public information design as the focus of our multidisciplinary design practice and believed in the notion of good design for the common good, end quote. That's a good quote. Yeah. It's interesting because I, like, talking about our earlier discussion of, like, what graphic design could be, sure, it could be a lot of things, but I just always associated graphic design with maybe, like, marketing. Mm -hmm. Like, its purpose was maybe to sell something. But for them, they saw it as a way to provide tools and access to places of public life. I actually associate graphic design with wayfinding because the New York City subway map, it was designed by a graphic designer, if I'm not mistaken. So I always think of that. But mm-hmm. really, wayfinding, in essence, is graphic design, just one that's spatial in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. For me, when I think of graphic design, I think first I think of logos. Mm. But then I also think about infographics. I love an infographic. They're super important to help give people information in a better way. We should have more of them in our lives. And I guess wayfinding kind of falls within that category. I just had never kind of thought about it that way. But exactly, we need them. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I love infographics, too. You know, that's like one of my second career options. Politics, mm. wayfinding, bingo caller. <laughs> could do any of those. Hey, it could. So. <laughs> you can tie all three in some way, probably. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so what intrigued me the most were some of Sylvia's projects, right? So Sylvia would collaborate with the Citibank ATM design team mm. to create the user interface for the bank's cash machines. 
Okay, now that I would not have imagined. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> right? me neither. See, like that's the thing. I feel like graphic design, it's just one of those professions that goes a lot of ways, like we were saying before, but like in ways I would never have thought of. Yeah, that's nuts. Yo, okay, okay, so get this. So for the first time, these ATM machines, they would address the customers with a personal human voice by asking how may I help you to begin operation? Mm, I don't know about that. Yeah, that sounds a little creepy. I mean, if it's on the screen, how may I help you? That's nice. But like when you see it on the screen, but if it's a voice coming out of a machine, I would be taken aback by that. Agreed. Yeah. You know what it reminds me of? Did you guys ever go to Starbucks and there was a big screen and you could see the teller? No, Um, I've seen that for a couple, but that's usually because of uh, like hearing impaired uh, customers. Mm. Uh, Well, here for a while, there were there's still these big screens, but they don't show the teller anymore. But anyway, you could see the well, you know what I mean when I say teller? I don't know what else to call them. But um, yeah, it was really creepy. The drive through. Yeah, the drive to person. And it was so creepy. So when you said that, it reminded me of that. I understand what you're saying. And for us, it seems shocking. But think of, I don't know, I feel like from what I'm understanding is that before this ATM machines would just be like, start, begin. Like there was no personal Mm. humanizing connection. It was just like, I don't know. I guess it ties well to her like customer service uh, aspect. Yeah. But I mean, again, this was like early like early times like the beginning of the email and the internet and it was it's just interesting that like it's sylvia and her firm that would be the ones to create this more like human-centric paradigm shift of interaction between like a user and the computer system now we're seeing i guess the ends effects that's becoming too like now it's like where does the human and the machine begin and end so it's like machines are listening to us but anyway (laughs) it's it's interesting I mean, when you explain it that way, the implications are really fascinating, like learning how to humanize this new cold technology. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. So Sylvia, she would work with her firm, 212 Associates, until 1994, when she would start her own practice called Sylvia Harris LLC. And her firm would work to solve design problems for civic agencies, universities and hospitals. If I were in the job market, I'd send my resume to Sylvia Harris, LLC. (laughs) What project are you hoping to work on? Maybe I could get my voice to come out of some machines. (laughs) (laughs) But I would like to work on projects that involve wayfinding in those spaces, civic and university, especially because they're the types of projects that interest me. Yeah. Well, interesting enough, Sylvia would be the project leader to develop a design communication with patients for the New York Presbyterian and Columbia University Medical Center. Design communication like the voice in the ATMs, but in a hospital? <laughs> that yeah, seems sounds... even stranger. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure about this. You can practice nudity. Ding. Someone is getting their leg cut off. Oh my goodness. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> No, but it's, <laughs> but it's not that. These are two different projects. There's no voices coming out of the hospital okay. or medical center. Oh, 
but to go to our earlier discussion at the hospital, it was more about wayfinding, you know, like how to communicate to help patients navigate mm. the hospital. Yeah. Um, so with the ATM machine, it was all about how to enhance and improve the user experience. Basically, how to improve customer service all around via graphic design. Mm, how the space communicates with people. I really like that. Exactly. So this project was interesting because it started with um, they had done like several surveys to the patients and they were finding that patients would get lost trying to get to their appointments, all due to poor signage and wayfinding. Mm. Of course, wayfinding in hospitals is really important because, I mean, but I can Mm -hmm. see how the very beginning it might not have been so clear to them how important it was. And Mm. I mean, remember... When we talked about episode 31, Lady Florence Nightingale, she was dealing with retrofit hospitals. Like, it was oh, a yeah. mess. That's <laughs> horrible. Yeah, not good. I mean, I'm imagining retrofit hospitals, that's like bad enough, but then figuring out how to get to where you need to go inside of them? Terrible, no. probably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it sounds like Sylvia's work would make a big difference in those hospitals. Hospitals are confusing, y'all. Like... Just yes, it is. My gosh. And I mean, I had a similar experience at my grocery store. <gasps> like they were in the middle of like rearranging different aisles. So the cereal was where the pasta was supposed to be. I mean, granted, they had like a better plan because they had people like stationed at like every other aisle just to help me look for the peanut butter. <laughs> <laughs> yes, wayfinding <laughs> at the grocery store is also crucial. Very true. Yes. Not life-threatening like a hospital, but still, it's it's important. Okay, so with Sylvia, her process, she had five steps. The very clear five steps in her design process. First, she had assessment and finding the cause of the problem. So like a survey, perhaps. And then second, management. She wanted to make sure that the building was still under control, not chaos. The third was to create a strategy to fix the problem. The fourth was design. And then the last step was implementation, which would include making negotiations for the for the designs to be approved. That kind of sounds like the stages of an architecture project. Programming, Mm pre-design, schematics, CD, CA. Yeah, it does. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so anyway, her other notable projects was the U.S. Census. Whoa. Yeah. Sylvia was the creative director behind the design of the 2000 United States Census. The goal was to increase participation, especially among underrepresented populations. That sounds like a huge project. So Mm -hmm. I'm assuming she's designing like the forms that get sent out to people, right? Yes. Okay. So after 30 years, the census was in decline. Basically, people were not doing the census. You know, so sure. they, they were just it was boring, black and white. Like, I'll show pictures because it's, it's fascinating what it looks like. <laughs> the old one um, or the new one? The old one. Oh, okay. The old one. Black and white. I don't remember the new one boring. being all too like amazing. <laughs> exhilarating. <laughs> well, we well, maybe it's changed after it was that, online, though, was... the last time I did it. So. Mm. Oh, really? Well, they sent okay, you something so, in the mail anyway. to tell you go online and do it, you know? Oh, that's right. Actually, it's all digitized now, I think. Anyway. All right. So, well, before it got digital. Yeah. Like 30 years or 30 plus years ago. Now. 20 years uh, ago. You mean. 20 years ago. Oh, I don't know. Girl, (laughs) 
I just I was like, I'm just gonna add another 30 years after. <laughs> Um, anyway, Sylvia's design, it was this newly designed census that would be distributed to 80 million households. Basically, this was giving the Bureau a chance to study how a redesigned form could boost participation and bring public awareness of the census brand. That is really cool. Did it work? Sure did. Yeah. I Like I mentioned before, it, I will have the images on our show notes of all of these or as much as pro- as many projects as I can, but just to see the before and after of what the census looked like and just like Sylvia's stamp on it. Just you want to fill out that form. I can't wait. Yeah. I love a good before and after. Oh, yeah. OK, so although this is a wild card episode or wild card season, I don't know. I thought it was kind of cool how like a graphic designer could collaborate and influence architects. So like wayfinding is so important in hospital designs. And so that was like the the first like, oh, yeah, OK, this is how Sylvia influenced the architecture field, you know, through wayfinding as a graphic designer. But reading about the census stuff, I think about just how information that you find from a census could be so useful when it comes to like urban planning. So to have Sylvia there to really drive the need to get more responses and representation on the census. I just thought it was so great. Yeah, I think this episode is great to show all the different careers and ways that one can influence the built environment. And mm-hmm. that's what we're about. Building and construction, the design of space. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can definitely see how her work would influence spatial design mm-hmm. in different areas. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so some other notable accolades would be that she was a part of the board of AIGA, which stands for the American Institute of Graphic Arts. She also sat on the Citizen Stamp Advisory Committee. Way to go, Sylvia. Whoop, whoop. Get them notable accolades. (laughs) Yeah. So basically, she helped put people of color on stamps like mailing stamps like oh, that's what being on the that's neat. stamp at first i didn't realize that's what that was that's cool yeah she just wasn't like collecting stamps See, or anything. another thing or that like, like yeah obviously a graphic designers are de- designing stamps but like right not they're I so don't think cool. about it they're doing it all guys <laughs> they look are at, yeah. look at them go so i mean i I had a lot of fun researching Sylvia and figuring out what graphic designers do. Um, But what I liked about Sylvia and her work, though, I think my favorite part was that Sylvia loved to talk to real people. Like this is a quote from uh, one of her colleagues. She liked to talk to real people to understand what they wanted and needed to understand how their perceptions impacted or framed something. She and I think Sylvia did this with like all aspects of her designs or even anything that she was involved with when it came to like a hospital lobby, to a census form, to a postage stamp. She was really in it. Yeah. I mean, I love to hear this. I mean, we talked about this with other ladies in past episodes that like really understanding a client's need or a community's need is so important when you're implementing a design that's going to function well and be usable like the census or the wayfinding in hospitals. Right. And so like, mm-hmm. it's obvious that this was true of Sylvia's work too. A hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. So another client that Sylvia had was the Central Park Zoo in New York. 
So Sylvia, she helped design and redo the different displays to present the information in a more effective way. She's helping people get information all over. I love it. She really was. (laughs) Spread the knowledge, Sylvia. Right? I just think it's fun. Like she's so think about the zoo. Like I read those things all the well, it's not like I go to the zoo all the time. Sure, but like you gotta find out about the animal, you know? Right? That's how you know about like emus and femurs mm-hmm. and whatever. But anyway, outside of working on all these cool projects, Sylvia was also a professor. She taught at her alma mater, Yale. She also taught at the School of Visual Arts, Cooper Union and Purchase College. Of course. I would expect nothing less of one of our ladies. Yep. I'm glad she found time to teach because people need to learn her ways and keep that ball rolling. Very true. Oh, yeah, for sure. She was always about mentoring people. So on top of all this, I also found out that her and other designers would organize the first organization of Black Designers Conference in Chicago, which I think was in 2005. So cool. Mm -hmm. What isn't Sylvia doing? I mean, for real. I don't know. But uh, she's just doing a whole bunch of stuff because... She would also start this nonprofit called the Public Policy Lab, which was an organization committed to the more effective delivery of public services to the American people. Another place I could send my resume if I need an architecture break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, a Public Policy Lab. I feel like I've seen that organization, especially like in D.C. and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, she would also work with uh, architects like she worked on it before she went to grad school. But now as a professional, she would work with architects to talk about a lot of this stuff. But anyway, in 2011, at the age of 57, while on a trip to D.C., Sylvia will pass away suddenly due to heart failure on July 24th. Oh, my gosh. That's so mm-hmm. young. 57? Yep. Oh. Mm-hmm. Man, that's so sad. I mean, imagine all the things she could have kept doing. Yes, that's crazy. Guys, this is a good reminder to take care of your heart. Get that cardio in, do your Zumba, Mm. do what you need to do. Yeah, good cholesterol, eat your avocados. Because, I mean, it is sad uh, because her father had also passed away of heart failure, too. Oh, no. Listen, family history is no joke. Talk to your doctors, people. Mm-hmm. She builds podcast PSA. Schedule your yearly checkup today. Mm. Yes. Mine yes. is next month. So. Okay. Oh, get get it. on I need it. To okay. Push. Yeah. <laughs> I've been eating my avocados. And I was supposed yoga-y. to go this week, but my doctor called in sick. So they rescheduled me. Oh, oh. oh. that's always kind of funny to me. when I know. I was sick. like, oh, ironic. <laughs> but I also don't want to see her if she's sick. So, you know. Yeah. Rest up. No. Okay. So, yes. Her passing was sudden, and it's not like she had time to document her work or to write her own memoir, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So like I mentioned before, a lot of my research came from personal accounts from people that knew her and worked with her. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So it was interesting to get people's like uh, input. Uh, She was really well loved. They people would say that she had great energy. She was passionate and very intelligent. She was a great mentor and teacher. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it. I believe it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As a designer and a woman, uh, this quote that I read was that Sylvia Harris always wanted to do the right thing, the smart thing, the thing that would make the biggest difference to the most people. She was the model citizen, a citizen designer. (sighs) 
What a great title. Mm. Yes. Love it. Uh, and it's great. Uh, oh, actually, before she passed, she had actually changed her firm's name. So instead of it being like Sylvia Harris LLC, it would become Citizen Research and Design. Ooh. So similar to some of her previous work, she wanted to push for more human-centered research to influence design. And she would help and consult with organizations and architects and designers um, to like one of the big things was they she wanted to ensure that they adopt tools of modern life to promote a better human experience. That's so cool. That cool? I like that yeah. design for humankind was at the center of her organization and even in the name. Right. It wasn't about her, mm -hmm. but it's about the community that they're serving through their work. Yeah, exactly. All right. So now we have reached the second half of the episode of The Karyotid. Marjorie, can you remind our listeners what a karyotid is? I can. A karyotid is a stone carving of a woman used as a column or a pillar to support the structure of a Greek or Greek style building. In each episode, we choose a karyotid, a woman who is working today, furthering the profession through their work and who ties into the historical woman of our episode. All right. So this week's karyotid goes to... Ding, ding, ding. Amanda Williams. Whee! Amanda. Okay, can I just say after seven seasons, I wish we had a sound effect to do this, but I have fun making our own. <laughs> but drum I like rolls, making our yeah, own. Yeah, this is roll. it. Yeah, <laughs> it's just. You know, you'd think we'd have something by then, but this we is... can't find anything better. Exactly. <laughs> I like adding my chicka ah at the end. <laughs> okay, so Amanda Williams. I'm actually surprised that we hadn't picked Amanda. And honestly, I was almost hesitant to pick her because I thought we might have actually made her a character a few seasons back. But <laughs> anyway, Amanda Williams, she is an artist and architect. She is represented by the Rona Hoffman Gallery in Chicago. Amanda got her architecture degree from Cornell University with an emphasis on fine arts. Amanda's work consists of a series of exhibitions, installations, sculptures, you name it. On the gallery website, it says that Amanda's work seeks to inspire new ways of looking at the familiar and in the process raise questions about the state of urban space and ownership in America. Wow, that sounds really interesting. I'm really intrigued to see her artwork and how she goes about accomplishing that through the artwork. Right? Because that's a lot. I know that's a lot to put on artwork. Yeah, it does. But she does it so well. Oh. I mean, I've been following her work for years. Like, that's why I thought we had talked about it, because I could have sworn I included her somewhere. But maybe it was just <laughs> in my dream of interviews because. OK, uh, well, let, let me just explain a couple of her projects. One of her projects that stood out to me. But OK, first of all, Amanda was in the Venice Biennale in 2018. She would work alongside other Americans to install a piece called Thrival Geographies. In my mind, I see a line. This installation was located at the U.S. Pavilion Courtyard. So I, I don't know. I want to say that she might have been the first African-American woman to participate in the Venice Biennale, but I'm not 100% sure. I do remember it being pretty monumental that she was there. We're starting rumors. <laughs> I know, right? No, no, no. I don't think it's a rumor, though. I just... Allegedly. I'm like 90% like sure. Okay. 
But anyway, even if that's not true, just the fact that she was in the Venice Biennale. Yeah, to it's me, impressive. Makes my little heart, little heart sing. And then For she sure. also, I mean, Amanda, she's has she has had exhibitions at the MoMA in New York, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago. She is also on the museum design team for the Obama Presidential Library Center in Chicago. I don't know. Her work just reminds me of Sylvia a little bit because I think they're both bringing these important conversations to the table, but in their own way. And like through their version of design, whether it was wayfinding at a zoo or a conversation about immigration in Venice. Yeah, I can see a connection between the two of them, just like how they're using these different mediums uh, in order to raise specific issues and topics like you were saying. Exactly. Okay. So another thing that I forgot to mention, well, it's actually, you know, probably the biggest thing to happen to Amanda in her life just this year in 2022. Amanda was awarded the MacArthur Genius Grant. What? Yeah. Wow. Hold the phone. I mean, this award or grant recognizes society changing people whose work offers inspiration and insight. Mm, This is really cool. It is. It is. Yeah. I, yeah. Like, um, I learned about it. Have you guys read Grit? I've read a little bit. I don't think I actually read it, but yeah, it's a I really know good it. book. I really liked it, and the lady that wrote it won this grant. So that's well, yeah, how I she know did. about it. Oh, cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, she did. Duckworth was her yes, last name. Angela Duckworth. Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty cool. She also gets a lot of money throughout the year, like in oh. the span of like a couple of years. Well, but to it's do good still, things. Like, help to do good things, even though they don't monitor what they do, like how they spend their money, like they don't have to <laughs> report how they spend Are it. Are we now critiquing but, the MacArthur Genius Grant? No, that, no, that's neither here nor there. Where's this going? It's, I mean, I just know that Amanda's going to do cool things with it because she yes. seems like a cool yes. person. So I'm just saying, I did I, as I was reading it, it's like they get a lot of money. But anyway. Here we are at the end of our episode. But before we sign off, we want to give thanks to CMYK for the music, John W., our technical producer. And most of all, we want to thank you for listening and coming back for season seven. We hope you enjoyed learning more about Sylvia and Amanda along with our banter and that you're inspired to find out more about them and our other amazing ladies. So again, thank you. She Built's podcast is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. Gable Media is curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Please let us know what you thought of our episode. If you've enjoyed it, please help us spread the word. Tell your friends, your wayfinders, your graphic designers, your infographickers, your artists, your MacArthur Genius Grants awardees. (laughs) Tell everybody, tell them to give us five stars on iTunes and on Spotify. Write us a review. This all helps us reach a wider audience and for more people to learn about these amazing ladies with us. We're excited to hear from you and for you to come back and keep learning about women bosses with us. You can email us your thoughts at shebuildspodcast at gmail.com. Leave a comment on our website, shebuildspodcast.com. Or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at SheBuildsPodcast and on Twitter at SheBuildsPod. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Amanda was in the Venus Biennale in 2018. Pause for effect. Venice. You know, the Venice Biennale. But maybe say Venice Venice instead of Venus.
I did say that wrong. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. It sounded weird. Um, yeah, Venus. <laughs> the Venus. I'm your fire. I'm your fire. Your desire. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it guys. Oh my One that God. came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.